mama's in the kitchen this glorious day. Smell the gravy simmering nearly half a mile away. Lady morning glory. That's a great song. I always listen to it right around this time every year. And I'm pretty sure it was like co-written by Steve Allen. You have to be kind of old for that to matter to you, but I am old. So, And today's show is about recipes. And I'm going to be honest. When senior producer Lily Tyson came to me and said, what if we did a show about recipes? And I'm thinking, ah, eh. <laughs> Making those Seinfeld noises. Eh, I don't know. But in fact, she said, well, there's lots of ways that we could do it that would be more specific to the way we do things. For example, she said, there's uh, someone who makes TikTok videos based on recipes that are found on gravestones in cemeteries. I said, okay, fine. We'll do it. No, nope, you don't have to tell me anything else. <laughs> That's I'm sold. Uh, and so we are doing this show and we're going to start exactly with that. We have lots of other interesting things to tell you about recipes that really have nothing to do with using them to make dinners. But yeah, you're going to use them a lot in the next couple of days and all the other holidays. And it's going to be the 4th of July at some point. And you're going to have to find out who's got the really good potato salad recipe. So this doesn't ever really go away. But joining us right now is somebody who really has broken through in a very interesting way. Rosie Grant posts gravestone recipes and cemetery stories on her TikTok and Instagram account as ghostly.archive. Rosie Grant, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So obviously the first question that everybody asks you, I'm sure, is How'd you get into this? What was your, what was your on-ramp to cemetery gravestone recipes? Uh, well, weirdly enough, it was getting to be a librarian as all uh, unusual niche hobbies come out. <laughs> I can only hope. Um, but I was in library science school at the University of Maryland last year, and uh, we needed to do like an internship. So I interned in a, a local archive, which so happened to be a cemetery. And uh, while interning at Congressional Cemetery is how I first heard about recipes on gravestones. And so I cooked it and I had started a TikTok about the experience at the time. And uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. And the first one was the Spritz cookies. Was that the first one that you did? Oh, yeah. So the Spritz cookie was the first one I heard about, which is the grave of Naomi Odessa Miller Dawson. She's buried in Brooklyn, New York at this gorgeous cemetery. And you kind of walk up to her grave and it looks like an open cookbook. It's like a book with pages and it's the ingredients written out. It's like on this like little pedestal and there's no instructions to it. So when I first cooked it, I got it extremely wrong. <laughs> and TikTok let me know. Uh, but I got a lot of cool messages of like, oh, my grandmother used to make spritz cookies. I'd never heard of spritz cookies before. Um, I didn't realize you needed like a cookie press. And so people were commenting and posting about how their families made this cookie and I took that into account and made it again and again and eventually met with the family. And they actually taught me how Naomi made her cookies. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that video. And, and it made me think probably, I mean, obviously everybody misses the departed. But also this was obviously done as a way of celebrating the departed and celebrating a specific aspect of the departed. I'm guessing that family was kind of psyched to have you do something like this. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I feel almost bad for like the, the just, it's been an overwhelming outpouring of all these like people interested in, and this particular gravestone is just so beautiful. I know it's been featured on Atlas Obscura before just because it's a very lovely gravestone. Uh, Naomi herself was pretty private. And so I don't know, there's something to say about like food and death and you wouldn't assume they'd be very connected. It's like this death, the dead person giving to the living, like something, you know, a form of nourishment with a recipe. Um, but it is like I can't even think at this point now a better way to memorialize someone like when you when you look at an average gravestone that has like a name and a death date, like you don't get a lot out like you don't remember 
even as like a passerby or a distant relative of like, who was this person? But when you cook their like their cookie or their cake or something that they had during life and enjoyed, you get the smells, you get the taste. It's like, I don't know, it connects to so many senses. It's amazing. No, a lot of people are listening, including my significant other, and thinking, wait a minute, I go to cemeteries all the time. I've never seen any of these. I've never seen any recipes. I've seen every kind of poem and carving in the world, but uh, because I actually I live with somebody who really likes cemeteries. So these are mm-hmm. rare, right? Th- this is not something, this is not an everyday epitaph. Yeah, they're pretty unusual. I would say like when when some people have said like, oh, is there like this is this like a trend? And I would not say so. I would say it's part of a larger trend of like, Modern gravestones, particularly in the U.S., are getting a lot more personalized. So, like, if someone loved dogs, you'll see dogs on gravestones or poems or, you know, QR codes or literally anything. So for these particular women in the U.S., they've all been women. As far as across the board, I've only heard about 17 of them, um, which considering how many groups there are out there is not a lot. And none of them seem to have been aware of the other ones. They were all disconnected. It was just their family on their own deciding this recipe was important to me or important to my grandmother or my mom. And so putting it on their gravestone, Naomi's recipe itself was her son's idea. She had never shared it in life. People would ask for it. She would always tell them, nope, it's a secret. And so it was literally at the end of her life that her son asked for the recipe to put it on her gravestone. Cause he's like, this is how we remember you. Like you make the spritz cookies so well. And so, like, she literally took it to the grave, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> We're going to get back to you, by the way, about the QR codes. That's like a whole other <laughs> show. But um, but I also have to ask, I mean, do you, do you, I assume after you make these things, you eat them. Have you, are, are some of them just super delicious? Are, are all of them just super delicious? Oh, my gosh. All of them are amazing. There's something, there's something interesting about a cookie recipe itself. Generally, all of them, so in the U.S. at least, they've all been women. And almost all of them have been desserts, particularly baked goods. And there's something pretty forgiving about most recipes that are like a cookie or a cake. Like, you know, if you're compared to like, I don't know, a lasagna or something with even more steps, like especially a cookie recipe, you in general can mix the ingredients together. And so it's minimal instructions compared to maybe other recipes. And they're so good. Some of them I definitely mess up and TikTok will let me know about it. So I'll cook them a few times. Um, But all of them have been incredible. Like, I think my favorite right now is a carrot cake which is super good. There's even the icing recipe is actually on the gravestone itself. And yeah, I don't know, like they're, it's, it's so interesting even to think about like recipes that are important to you, like what would go on your gravestone. Like my family started talking about this there. I don't know. A dessert makes a whole lot of sense. It's very comforting and very delicious. Well, the other thing is you really have to follow the recipe too. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I make I already know what I'm making dinner tonight, but I don't have a recipe (laughs) for it. You know, Uh, I make really good risotto. I don't really, Nice. I mean, you just sort of feel your way through that. You know, I don't mm-hmm. wouldn't really know how to tell somebody how to do it. We'd be mostly instructions and not that much ingredients, whereas the recipes on the gravestones tend to be the other way around, right? Here are the ingredients. Mm-hmm. You could probably figure it out from here. Right, exactly. I mean, some of them don't even have instructions, so those have been the most, like, kind of, like, experimental. And usually even, like, so in the case of Naomi's, I had been – cooking it at the wrong temperature. I had been um, like, I wasn't chilling the dough. There was just like little like touches that she made that, I mean, in some ways, if she wanted to keep it a secret, she still has that secret to herself of the actual instructions to the cookies. And then other ones have like a full plaque. So like there's this one recipe gravestone in um, Israel that like the entire instructions are written out for this jam nut roll. And it's very detailed. And so like literally you have to go step by step. And the first several times I made it wrong because I couldn't even find like all of the ingredients for it. It needed 
uh, Turkish delight. And during the pandemic, I couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely a process for actually like cooking through a recipe itself. Right. And one of my favorite things is I noticed this in the meatloaf recipe, but it may have happened in other things, is that you're at this little work table doing this recipe and sort of propped up in front of you is a picture of a gravestone with the recipe. (laughs) You're actually working from the gravestone. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, the meatloaf one is actually very funny. So that one, the recipe itself isn't even on the the gravestone. It's um, it's in the cemetery's archives and the woman who had passed away, uh, her recipe says she made the best meatloaf. Mm-hmm. And so the cemetery as like, as uh, basically like a crowdfund for themselves made a recipe book and included her recipe and her whole story uh, in the book itself. So that one's actually even my, like, technically it's a recipe gravestone, even if the instructions aren't on it. Right. We should say the audience for these TikTok videos is significant, right? It's, it's sometimes <laughs> in seven figures. Yeah, I mean, the first video itself, which was just trying to cook through Naomi's spritz cookie recipe, got like 1.8 million views almost overnight. And the audiences continue to grow. I mean, and if for people on TikTok, you know, you have the different niches. So there's like the grave talk people, the cemetery TikTok people, and food TikTok and baking TikTok. And it's like this weird combo of these two very specific niches. But and, and I think it is interesting that meatloaf notwithstanding, most of these recipes that are on the gravestones are, are for desserts, for cookies or carrot cake or whatever. And I think that's also, I don't know, there's some real ceremony attached to that. Not that somebody's 4th of July uh, picnic potato salad doesn't have its own, you know, gravitas. But there's something about these, if you think about it, you think about holiday, you know, there's always somebody who, who has these cookies that she makes once a year, you know, and, and maybe mm-hmm. she even drives around and delivers them. I mean, we have a friend, Deirdre, who d- does that. Like, and everybody, nobody can wait to, for the Deirdre cookies to come. And and it's maybe, it often is a thing that's maybe just done for a holiday or a special occasion. And I think that mm-hmm. probably is one of the ways in which, you know, it's about food, it's about death, but it's really about memory. Mm, exactly that. I mean, I think a lot about that, like the Ratatouille Disney movie where like at the very end, the sort of like antagonist of the movie like has a very simple dish and it takes him and like transports him back to like a childhood memory. And I definitely think like recipes and food have this amazing way to like conjure up loved ones. Like both of my grandmothers died during the pandemic and the things that connect me the most to like thinking about them and reminiscing them is like the food that they made for me when I was a kid. So like my one grandmother for every holiday would and birthday would make us this yellow cake with chocolate icing. And we talked about it during her funeral. We're like, oh, my gosh, I, like, want her cake. Like, that would bring me so much closer to her than just even, like, thinking about her or, like, looking at photos. And then at the end of the day, my mom was like, that was just a box cake. Like, there was nothing special about it. But for all of us, we got so nostalgic about this yellow cake um, just because, like, you have so many memories with a person and you're eating it and you're smelling it. And, yeah, it's incredible what it does to us. Uh, Rosie Grant, it's so great to talk to you. We'll be back in touch about the QR codes. So get those uh, TikTok videos going as well. But right now, Rosie Grant posts gravestone recipes and cemetery stories on her TikTok and Instagram account at ghostly.archive. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a blast. That's uh, Le Festin from Ratatouille, which, you know, I mean, we had to play that. Um, We had actually already decided we were going to play that, and then she mentioned it. All right, so speaking of that, 
Uh, it's going to make uh, Helen Zoe Veit, our next guest, feel right at home because she's in France right now, an associate professor of history at Michigan State University who specializes in the history of food in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> just out of curiosity, where in France are you at the moment? I am in Nantes, a city in Western France that is a hidden gem. Um, and you know, everyone assumes I'm in Paris, but I'm I'm secretly hiding in Nantes. Right, um, known for their edict. Um, I'm not that's sure what exactly. Yeah, that's, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's that's my one sort of you know mnemonic placement for for Nantes. Yep, you and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this. Now we're not going to go back this far, but there are still discoverable. Mesopotamian recipes. And in fact, uh, Laura Kelly from the, um, the Silk Road Gourmet did a, did a challenge. I think some Yale students were involved too, where they actually made some recipes from Mesopotamia. So that's how far, far back the idea goes. But, yes. but your focus is a little bit more recent. And maybe you can just talk about the development of, of the idea of recipes uh, in America. I guess maybe the first thing, since you are in France right now, the first thing I'd ask you is, is there sort of, can you feel the stress and strain of the United States, say in the 19th century, trying to break away from the notion that great recipes exist in France or somewhere else, but not here? Yeah, I mean, that the, the sort of tension that Americans feel vis-a-vis -vis French cuisine is just such a constant in American history. I mean, in, in the 19th century, there was an obsession with French cuisine. And so many of our words, including cuisine and things like menu and saute and, and so many basic American, what we think of as American or English words, um, go, come straight from the French because there was this longstanding obsession with French food and, a, you know, a sense of inferiority or a sense of, you know, trying to emulate. And, you know, you could, and books have been written just tracing that relationship by itself. So are there things that sort of amount to turning points about that? I should say I'm sitting right now in Catherine Beecher's old neighborhood. I mean, I, oh. you know, walking in my front of my car to the parking lot, I traversed ground that Catherine Beecher's feet probably also traversed <laughs> at some point. Hallowed ground. Hallowed ground. <laughs> so, I mean, I think of her as maybe somebody who comes to the fore and, and says, well, no, we're going to have our own cuisine. We're going to have our own recipes. I'm going to tell you what the recipes are, are going to be. Uh, sh there was this publication, American, The American Woman's Home, where I think a lot of that happened. Is that kind of around the time it starts or is it earlier than that? Yeah. So since, um, you know, since the beginning of the country, Americans have been asserting their own cuisine. The first American cookbook was published pretty soon after the revolution, relatively soon. It was published in 1796. It was partly plagiarized, as many American cookbooks have been. Um, but it also had some original recipes that included uh, Native American ingredients, things like pumpkins and cranberries, um, lots of corn. And, um, you know, we can trace ever since then through writing, which is, you know, thinking about written recipes, the ways that Americans have tried to stake out ground for themselves, sometimes in contrast to what Americans think of as fancy cuisine or more sort of Baroque or complicated things that they might be making in Europe um, and trying to assert a, a plainer cuisine or a simpler cuisine or something that's maybe closer to producers, closer to farmers. Right. I should say, by the way, Catherine Beecher uh, was rather tart-tongued about things at times. I found uh, one piece where she said, witness, witness the national recipe for plum pudding, which may be rendered, take a pound of every indigestible substance you can think of, boil into a cannonball, and serve with flaming brandy. 
Um, <laughs> elsewhere, she actually does provide a real recipe for plum pudding. But, you know, that's, that's showing, showing a little attitude, a little pep in her step. Um, Absolutely. And, and the recipes at that time, there's so many things that we take for granted right now. We have watches so we can time things. We have various forms of thermostats for our ovens and meat thermometers. And I mean, how many of those things kind of, well, most of those things didn't exist. I guess how how would a 19th century American cook trying to use recipes be compensating for the absence of those things? That's a great question. So one, one thing you realize when you read these older recipes is how much recipes today are reliant on technology like watches, timers, thermometers. So in the absence of those, Often recipes instructed cooks to use their bodies. For example, um, you know, if you weren't sure of the temperature of your oven, some recipes said, stick your hand in the oven and start counting. And if you can bear to leave your hand in the oven for three seconds, but no longer, that's the right temperature, put the batter in, something like that. Um, they often just relied on experience. And this could be incredibly frustrating for new cooks. They said all the time things like, cook until it's done. So instead of saying cook for 15 minutes or 45 minutes, which was harder to gauge when you don't have a timepiece, they they you know rely on the cook checking and also knowing. And we always assume recipe, we always assume knowledge in recipes. Recipes do this today too. Um, but there's a huge amount of knowledge assumed in your average 19th century recipe, sometimes about things like this, sometimes about much larger techniques. For example, Today, a standard recipe is a list of ingredients and then instructions. We take it for granted that that is what a recipe is. But in the 19th century, they, they would regularly leave off one or the other. So you might have an entire recipe that was just a list of ingredients, like, like the spritz cookies on the gravestone, where it's just ingredients. That was actually standard in the past. Or you might just have a set of instructions where they assume you know to add, you know, salt, or they assume you know to add certain things, um, which you know made it hard to break into cooking if you if you didn't if you weren't in a community, and and these this kind of recipe format also reveals how much many people were embedded in communities where they had people they could ask, um, and and you know one interesting thing that we see in American historical recipes is that as the population became more and more mobile and people started you know going to different regions or leaving those communities or those families recipes start getting more detailed you know it's it's also well, there's so much to unpack in what you just said there too and i think that really is true that you know people people also lived with their extended families, you know, and so you're, you know, one one generation taught the next generation taught the next generation. So you didn't necessarily need quite as many instructions in a printed recipe. But the other thing that, of course, happened as we moved into the 20th century is that food that was available locally was no longer the limit of what you could cook, right? At a certain point, you could start thinking about ingredients that didn't come from a farm or any other kind of food producer near you. That's that's absolutely true. And I mean, you know, I think we can tend to romanticize um, local food as something that our, our great grandparents did. And if you you know, one interesting thing is if you look at 19th century recipes, almost they're almost never totally local. You see things like people calling for cinnamon or tea or coffee or sometimes chocolate or vanilla. But these these ingredients were more precious. They were harder to get. They were more rare. Um, the 20th century sees this explosion of food transportation networks and non-local foods. And so you have this 
this real burst of possibilities in what cooks could do. And cookbooks reflect that too. You know, it seems also that we've moved into a, a, another stretch here, a different kind of stretch of time with recipes. But let's sort of go backwards. I mean, for most of my life, anyway, there were sort of, you know, people, food writers like MFK Fisher, who really kind of turned the whole thing into literature, then Julia Child. Uh, then, I, you know, when I was a kid, The Joy of Cooking came out. Irma Rombauer, I think is her name, yep. something like that. Uh, you know, and these were sort of trusted sources. You know, you kind of knew who Julia Child, you knew what the Fanny Farmer cookbook was, and you you kind of knew you know what its origins were, and and had whatever attitude towards that you were going to have. But now it just seems like you know if you type, I don't know, boneless chicken thighs and sun dried tomatoes and Jerusalem artichokes into a search engine, you're going to wind up at Epicurious or Food Fifty Two or like and and I don't know. It's I find it very confusing because I don't know whether I trust any of these sites. I don't know them well enough. It really has become much more of a free for all. It really has. And and those are, you know, the sites you mentioned are, you know, sort of big respected sites, but there's also this huge pl- proliferation of ordinary home cooks who, who publish food blogs, which is, you know, wonderful, but also can be a little risky for, for other cooks who want to try things out and don't have much information about, you know, have these recipes been tested? Have they been vetted? Of course, there are reviews, which are, you know, can be really, really helpful, but it's, you know, a democratization, but also a, a crowding of what had been a relatively, um, you know, more navigable cooking landscape for for home cooks. So it's it's wonderful, but like many things, <laughs> like many things related to the internet, has downsides too. Yeah, and I think we're we still used to having a relationship. I mean, a lot of you know recipes that you use are often based on relationships. Either they come from somebody you actually know, maybe your mother gave them to you or whatever, or, you know, you sort of feel like you know Giada de Laurentiis. You know, like I, I kind of would trust a recipe that she came up with. I don't really know her or anything like that. But <laughs> but I've used enough of her stuff and everything. You know, you kind of have a sense. But we are now in an area where it's more like you're meeting a stranger in an alleyway and getting a recipe. You're like, right. who are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. I mean, one one other thing I would just note about modern recipes, you know, recipes that appear on blogs, the what the biggest change is how long they are. Because of course, you know, people who are creating content, they want content because they want advertising revenue. So now recipes have this, you know, incredibly long kind of blow by blow descriptions of how this own this person cooked the recipe themselves. Again, this can be useful, but it also creates this kind of tedious amount of reading, you know, that to potentially wade through before you get to the actual instructions. Right. So, and some people really want the narrative, and maybe there's a story behind it and all that kind of stuff. But an right. awful lot of people are kind of in a hurry. Uh, and and another thing that I think comes up is like you'll see a recipe with 20 ingredients. I don't want a recipe with 20 ingredients. Mm-hmm. I want a good recipe with six ingredients. Yeah. Uh, there's it's almost guaranteed I don't have four of the 20 ingredients on here. <laughs> um, and. So one thing that you found that I think is really fascinating is people think, oh, yes, this cookie recipe came from my mother and came in turn from her grandmother. You're finding out that – or somebody's finding out that a lot of these recipes are – like we're on the sides of boxes or, or something, right? Yeah. They, they, go ahead. Tell that story a little bit. Yeah. So it's it's you know it's really common. You know, as, as the previous guest said, too, to discover that a beloved family recipe actually has industrial origins, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you know someone's grandmother's favorite cake – 
came from a box. My grandmother, um, when I was little, used to make cherry rhubarb jam that she would serve us every summer. And it was this beloved dish for me. And one that I you know, thought of even as a child as being wonderfully old fashioned. After she died, I inherited her, you know, some of her recipe cards and I got this recipe and the main ingredients are um, cherry pie from a cherry, from a can, you know, like cherry pie mix and um, jello. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of a shock, but I keep making the recipe. I, I keep producing it because it, I still like it. It reminds me of her. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I think kind of, I think usefully, I don't know if humbling is the right word, but it, it reminds me that it's very easy to romanticize the past and that, you know, in fact, American food has been involved in industrial processes. I mean, for well, you know, well over 150 years at this point. And to try to escape that altogether, you know, can can be not only false, but, you know, I think a little risky. It, it's just it separates you from reality. Last question, and it's a thorny one, which is that question of copyright, where the recipes can be plagiarized. Uh, and I, living in Connecticut, have lived through one or two Paula Wolfert uh, lawsuits because uh, <laughs> Paula Wolfert kind of became famous for saying, you know what? That's my recipe and you stole it and I'm suing you. Uh, it didn't always work all that well, but it, but it is. It's kind of a, a question that's open for debate, right? How much anybody can own a recipe? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that recipes are not copyrightable. You you cannot copyright a recipe currently, which I, I think many people have mixed feelings about if they think about it. On the one hand, uh, you know, we want to elevate the, the true intellectual and physical labor that goes into creating a recipe. It really is an intellectual act, I think. Um, and it produces something valuable. In many other realms, you would be able to copyright that. At the same time, can you imagine if re if recipes actually were copyrighted and we couldn't pass them around and, you know, tweak them and then take credit for them? All of that that makes cuisine so wonderfully fluid and personal. Um, so I, you know, I tend to err on the side of thinking it's probably a good thing that we can't we can't copyright them. Well, uh, I'm just keeping you from an evening in, in Nantes, so uh, I'm going to say goodbye <laughs> to Helen Zoe Veit, uh, Associate <laughs> Professor of History at Michigan State University, who specializes uh, in the history of food in the United States in the 19th and 20th century. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. And we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back after this. I hate soup. I hate soup. You just never know the things that could go in soup. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. I like, I like, I like pie. I like, I like, I like pie. I like, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like pie. All right, we're back. We're talking about recipes, about what the sort of fundamental nature of a recipe is. And here to help us with that uh, is Chandra Ram, a food book, a food book, a cookbook author, food writer, and the associate editorial director for food of food for food and wine. Uh, Francis Lamb is the host of The Splendid Table uh, and vice president uh, and editor-in-chief at Clarkson Potter, a division of Penguin Random House uh, focused on cookbook publishing. I will say that those of you who are Francis Lamb fans will not be uh, disappointed on Thanksgiving Day here where I believe we have a total of six hours counting repeats <laughs> of Francis Lamb. So uh, uh, I think Unlimited. We, yeah, we got Unlimited tr- Splendid Table on right. Thursday. We got Turkey Confidential and Splendid Table and we're rerunning up. Really, it's just wall-to-wall Francis Lamb. So very exciting to have you here. I think Chandra, Chandra just dropped off Zoom, so we'll get her back. But So maybe just talk about the idea of a recipe. Like if you had to explain to somebody from Mars what a recipe is <laughs> and, and what it isn't, uh, what would you say? Well, that's already a super loaded question, so thank you for starting with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I would say, and what everyone would say, right, is it is a set of instructions, maybe a formula for how to create a dish, you know, and and how to create the thing that, um, you know, I thought of in my kitchen so that you can make it in yours. And, you know, I think that there is definitely a sense that that's what it should be. And that's a sense what it is. And, but the reality is, as Helen talked about before, and and even as uh, Rosie talked about before her, there's so much more to it than that. And in some ways, there's more to it than that, that kind of, um, more to it to that in in the sense that like oh human fallibility suggests <laughs> that um, the 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 platonic ideal of you being able to create the same thing that I just created from reading these instructions and making it yourself um, is always going to be uh, something you'll chase after and probably never fully achieve. And there's more to it in the sense that there's culture, there's story, there's personal narrative, there's history, and all of the human. Uh, follies that kind of come with those things too. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of people just would intuit. They would think, oh, well, who does the best recipes? The best cooks. And that's not really true, right? I mean, Danielle Balloud is a great cook. He doesn't necessarily, he needs Melissa Clark uh, to help him write a recipe (laughs) because he doesn't know you buy beans in cans that are 15.5 ounces. He buys beans, you know, in 40-pound bags or something. So there's a way in which that whole idea, I mean, chefs know what they know, but a recipe isn't. A recipe is somehow or other an extraction of those things that you know into a usable form. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a t- they're, they're almost totally different skills, right? Like I have seen so many chef recipes that are, as um, someone mentioned before, the whole recipe is literally just fifteen grams of this, forty-five grams of that, and then like no instructions. Because the assumption is, if I wrote this recipe down, I'm going to hand it to one of my sous chefs or one of my cooks, and if they're good enough to work in my kitchen, they know how to make this. <laughs> And so that's what a chef recipe could be. Um, 
And then, you know, but the actual skill of articulating in language, okay, this is what you do with this, and this is how long you do it, isn't as simple as do it for two minutes, because you might want to have to say, well, it might take two minutes, but it might take six, and here's how you know when you're done. You know, so being able to see, being able to observe, and then being able to articulate and use descriptive language and sometimes metaphor is really almost a poetic act. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I think Chandra, I think you're with us now. Just to follow up on that a little bit, I was listening to the chef and restaurateur uh, Mark Murphy saying that he sends his people to some kind of recipe writing workshop or weekend or something, uh, and it turns out that all of his wonderful chefs they literally can't write a recipe for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that would really make <laughs> it clear um, how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is if you were the person from Mars uh, that Francis was talking to a couple of seconds ago. So Chandra, maybe also say a little bit more. <laughs> about that you know what what is it about a, a recipe that makes it usable what is what is the gift that the recipe writer has you know i i look at a as a rep at a recipe as as being like a story you're telling and what's so important here to remember is that you, this is someone's meal this could be their thanksgiving dinner with their family this could be you know, lunch on a Wednesday afternoon at home, but this is a meal and this is how they're taking care of themselves, how they are taking care of others. And so it has to be clear. You cannot make any assumptions about prior knowledge. And to the point Francis was making a minute ago, you, you have to give indicators along the way. You can't say bake for 20 minutes without saying this is what you're looking for because your oven might run hot or, uh, it might be a little low or, you know, maybe the type of this type of cheese you bought isn't going to brown as quickly. So you need those indicators. And I think the best recipes have a helpful voice guiding you along the way. You know, Chandra, another thing that has arisen in recent years are these kind of meal kits that come. And so if you get uh, Martha Stewart's sent to you, you know, you get all the ingredients and you get a recipe. Although I'm amused, I, I sometimes read the comments on them or online comments, and there are people, often people with very small New York City apartments, I think, say, well, she didn't tell me I needed to have kosher salt. There's no kosher salt provided in the kit that was sent to me. Uh, but there's something nice about those recipes, right? If you're not a confident cook or you, you're not good at making sure you have the, all the ingredients there, you know, that's a good starter place anyway. You learn to follow a recipe and there's fewer places you can go wrong. Right. And, but I, I honestly, I think any incredibly detailed recipe will get you to the same place. So it doesn't have to be from a meal kit. Start, you know, start with something uh, for which you have a little bit of a frame of reference and make that. And also realize that when, when chefs perfect recipes in restaurants, Certainly when we write cookbooks and magazine, you know, recipes for the magazine, we make those over and over and over again. So it's, um, you know, sometimes it really helps just uh, to add a little repetition to the mix. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Francis, at the beginning, you accused me of asking you a loaded question, but then you <laughs> just opened a big Pandora's box a few minutes ago uh, because one of the things that, that is sort of an interesting question is why are so many recipes in imperial measurement or whatever you want to call it, cups and tablespoons and stuff like that, and why are they uh, vol volume measurements as opposed to measurements of mass, and why aren't we using the metric system? And So what's your take on all that? Um. 
Well, uh, I believe in empire, and so therefore the imperial <laughs> system is obviously superior. Um, you know, when you have a dark emperor that can shoot lightning out of its fingertips, you're right. going to do what he tells you to do. Um, and that's what you want as a respirator. You want someone who will blindly follow what you tell him to do, despite how <laughs> illogical it may seem. Um, this so I, went in a different direction than when I was planning. Yeah, me, me too. Chand- Chandra, you'll have your chance. You'll have your bite of this apple. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I actually, I don't know the history of why we among like all the nations of earth have not uh, adopted the metric system. I think it's because of uh, haughty American attitudes. Uh, it is a much more logical system, but the fact of the matter is like, you tell me what something is in kilograms and I have no idea what it means. I, you know, I need pounds. I need ounces. I'm sorry. Um, but that, that is actually one of the things that is really, uh, that kind of touches on again, this side of the hidden complexities of recipes and recipe writing and recipe reading and recipe understanding. And what I mean by that is, especially if we come from a world where, okay, a cup is eight ounces of liquid, and we know that, right? But a cup of flour is actually five ounces by weight of flour, even though it's eight ounces uh, by volume of flour. And even within that eight ounces of volume, it could weigh different things because did you dip the cup into the flour? Because that give you different weight versus if you pour the flour into the cup. So it, it gets pretty crazy making pretty quickly. And the simple solve for that is okay. Let's use metric. Let's just weigh everything, and you know, you know, two hundred grams of flour is always two hundred grams of flour, and that's fine. But what I've also found too is it that can also create a kind of sense of um, false security in the <laughs> recipe as well. You know what I mean? Because all of a sudden now it seems very scientific, and especially if we're talking about grams, all of a sudden, oh, it's very scientific. And yes, there is a level of precision. But precision is not necessarily the same as accuracy. And so I have absolutely worked on cookbooks with authors where, like they said, we have to use everything in metric. We have to use everything in weight because we want everything to be precise and say, okay, cool, great, let's do that. But then the fact of the matter is the 25 grams of vinegar they're using is a different strength than 25 grams of vinegar you used, Mm -hmm. right? And we haven't accounted for that because we assumed because we're using you know, the proper and precise metric system that everything's going to turn out the same way. So it, it kind of comes back to this larger thing again of there's so much that goes into, um, there's so much assumption you make intentionally or subconsciously as a recipe writer. You're, you're assuming the reader is going to read and understand your language in a particular way. And that just might not be the case. And, you know, that's true for any language art, right? That's true for poetry. Poetry intentionally lives in that ambiguity, right? Often. Um, But we don't think of recipes that way. We think of recipes as being scientific formulas, and they're they're not exactly that. And again, just to use another metaphor, I love the the story you told about the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) Okay. I presume you know how to tie your shoes. Yeah, although uh, I try not to have to, but yes. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> but you don't have to tie your shoes because someone taught you how to tie your shoes. But can you write down instructions <laughs> on how to tie your shoes and give them to someone? I, I hear I, what, it, yeah. it, Try it sometime because I'm going to tell you I've never found out how to do it. 
Um, that, it's, it's the simplest it's thing a great in the world, point. but it's yeah, yeah. yeah but and the that, hard that, thing that was the point of the peanut butter sandwich too. The chefs that uh, you know that Murphy was sending over there, you know, they were writing recipes where you could very easily wind up putting the peanut butter on the outside of the sandwich because they just hadn't really explained <laughs> that very well. Um, right. And so uh, Chandra, he kind of came back to earth. Maybe we, you, know, he, you don't have to say too much more about this, but <laughs> but there is the argument anyway that. With baking, you want to waste stuff. Maybe when you're making a big soup or something like that, you know, you're going to just use a stalk of celery anyway. So why are you going to weigh that? I mean, do you have specific thoughts about all this? I do. I mean, I yes. If you if you want everything to turn out exactly the same, then yes, weigh everything. Certainly, when I bake bread, I always weigh everything. I go, you know, measurements down to the gram. Um, but to your point, when you're making a big pot of soup, if I tell you, you need four cloves of garlic in there, do I mean the large ones on the outside and the outer rim of the head of garlic? Or do I mean the tiny ones on the inside? <laughs> do I, um, and, and how strong is that garlic? What was the temperature like, uh, where it grew? Uh, how old is it? All of those things come into play. So I like to think of a recipe as, as a conversation. And I think I, I so many cooks I talk with, um, chefs, professional, you know, cookbook authors, recipe developers, they really want people to learn the theory of cooking. And they want to give people that little bit of room to say, you know what, I like something, you know, I like a little bit spicier. So I'm going to do uh, you know, a heavier pinch of crushed red chili flakes, or I like this, you know, I like something a little bit saltier, or I'd like this to be brothier. But I think there's a time and a place for it. I was laughing at the beginning, um, not just because of Francis's imperial rant, <laughs> but um, because I was just thinking, wow, but Francis and I both have a giant stack or big uh, email folder of all the angry letters you get when you put something in metric and publish it because people are like, well, what is this? And why aren't you doing it the way I'm used to? And, you know, again, we are, this is people's dinner we're messing with here. So mm -hmm. let's do everything we can to meet them in a place where they are comfortable and walk them through it. So I only have time for one last question. It's killing me. I could talk to you people for an entire hour very easily. This is terrific stuff. But I want to go back to something that Chandra said, and then Francis, you said it in a different way. Chandra just said, you know, it's a conversation between the recipe writer and the cook. And you talked a little bit about kind of almost the relationship, you know. And, and I think if you cook uh, some, and I cook some, you know, you start to realize, like, I know Yotamoto Lengi is a great cook. I just don't, I don't connect with him. You know, I, I could, I could try 10 of his recipes and they're not going to come out right. And I'm just like, dude, we just don't look at the world the same way. Plus, what is orange, <laughs> what is orange flavor water? Is that, do I have to make it? What, what is that? I don't even know what that ingredient is. But that's sort of a thing, right? There's a chemistry, I think, between the, the cook, Francis, uh, and the, whoever is writing that recipe for the cook. Sure. Yeah. That's why we have jobs. <laughs> uh, that's literally why I, uh, I can put food on my table because, you know, as a, as an editor and publisher of cookbooks that, you know, if, if we just said, this is the one right way to make something, um, well then someone figured that out and maybe we should be able to copyright that and call it a day. But I think that 
cuisine is both culture and it's like Chandra keeps reminding us, it's also something like we can think about these abstract and in some ways high-minded ways, or we can just think about it in like the very basic reality, which is like, this is the thing you need to put in your body today so you can go to sleep, you know, feeling full and wake up in the morning and have energy tomorrow. Um, and everything in between. It's the thing, it's the thing around which you and maybe you enjoy the most time with your family. Um, that's certainly the case for me when I was growing up. Like we didn't talk. Like me and my family, we didn't talk, but we had dinner together every night, you know? Um, so, you know, when we're, when, we're, when, we're, when we're getting back to this idea of what does the recipe do, it, it really is a matter of like, well, how does food work in your life? And is this something that you want to learn from? Are you trying to look out, seek out cooks that have innovative ideas that you've never thought of because you're that kind of cook? great awesome those cooks exist are you looking for recipes from people who you know have spent a lot of time or grew up in a culture where they have a particular kind of cuisine that you're interested in maybe you want to go there for vacation one day you want to learn that cuisine before you've traveled or maybe you came back from traveling some somewhere and you want to recreate those tastes from that place well great there are people who are experts in those cuisines you know um if are you looking for something that just god i just need to be able to put dinner on the table in 20 minutes well there's a whole section of the cookbook shelf of those people too. Right. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you about that. We have, we're out of time, ironically. But you know, it was Pierre Franey's 60 Minute Gourmet was a huge mm-hmm. cookbook sensation in the 80s. I think 60 minutes seems like really long to people right now. Where's the recipe that takes 15 minutes? Uh, and that may be to our detriment. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Uh, Francis Lamb. You'll have Francis Lamb all day to keep you company on Thanksgiving Day. Six hours of Francis Lamb on this station. Uh, <laughs> That's way too much. <laughs> Ch- Chandra Ram uh, is a cookbook author, food writer, and associate editorial director of Food for Food and Wine. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back. We'll find out about what's in the Harry Potter cookbook, God Help Us. I like pie, I like cake, I like anything you bake. I like your crackers too, crumbled up in chicken stew. When I see your jelly roll, then I lose my self-control. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Special thanks to Gene Amatruda. He's our technical producer today. Very lucky to have somebody of his magnitude. Uh, Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode. So, you know, I think I got interested in food as a young guy reading the Nero Wolfe mysteries. Nero Wolfe was a gourmet, and he had a uh, cook, uh, I think an Austrian cook, in his his house. Uh, And there's a lot of discussion of food. And eventually... A Nero Wolf recipe book came out, and that kind of started or helped to start a whole thing that our guest is very involved in right now. Uh, we are uh, talking to uh, Dina Buhals, uh, author of the unofficial Harry Potter cookbook and the unofficial Narnia cookbook. So uh, we should say there's a Walking Dead cookbook, cookbook Sopranos, Black Panther, uh, Forking Good, the cookbook for fans of The Good Place, Back to the Future, uh, Star Trek, all this kind of stuff. So 
there's so much to ask you, Dina. But first of all, how do you how can you do a Harry Potter cookbook? I mean, I don't remember them eating food that was made out of anything that I was ever really aware of. It's not like they, you know, ate what I ate. The Harry Potter series is full of lots of really good food, actually. Um, food that you probably are very familiar with, you know, typical things like bacon and eggs, mm-hmm. soups and stews, uh, mashed potatoes, roast turkey, cranberry sauce. It's also full of a lot of British foods that a lot of Americans are not familiar with, um, which is what grabbed me because I was curious about what treacle tart was. At first, I thought it was a food that J.K. Rowling invented. (laughs) And then I discovered that, no, it's actually a classic British dessert. And it's uh, one of Harry Potter's favorite desserts. Um, So uh, I was was very curious about that. And I discovered that I wasn't the only one, um, which is how I got the idea. So, I mean, one great thing about cookbooks like this, too, is you can probably get kids to eat stuff they wouldn't typically eat because they like Harry Potter. That could be. But the truth is, is that the overwhelming majority of recipes in the cookbook are very sugary or (laughs) chocolatey or the kind of stuff kids love. So it's very easy for kids to find recipes that they like. And and you say that um, both J.K. Rowling and C.S. Lewis actually have kind of an interest in food that's evident from the text. Is that fair? I would absolutely say so. When you read the books, you can tell they are writing with so much gusto about food (laughs) in such a a way that you want to just be in there with the characters, enjoying the food. And they almost make food, the food is part of the tapestry. It's part of the setting, Um, but it's almost like its own character in the way that uh, it's, it's presented in the books. And so, I don't know, what, what was the biggest challenge? What's the hardest thing about taking something, you know, Rowling and Lewis, they're not writing food and recipes. How do you turn it in? What's the challenge to turning it into a usable recipe? A ton of research. Uh, you know, I, was, I wanted to make sure that I was creating the most authentic possible version of whatever food reference I was creating a recipe for. So I looked at the recipe, I looked at the dish in history. I, for some of the recipes in my book, I went all the way back to, uh, you know, especially in, in, in England. So um, I, I went all the way back to the form of Curie, which is a 14th century cookbook compiled by the master cook Sir Richard II. Um, fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating how sophisticated cooking was all the way back then. Absolutely. Um, this sounds yeah, sounds like a bigger <laughs> yeah. challenge, a bigger right. challenge than I had imagined. We're going to have to stop there. Unfortunately, uh, Dina Buholz uh, is author of the unofficial Harry Potter cookbook and the unofficial Narnia cookbook. Uh, also, I want to point out that even ctpublic.org slash recipes exists. Uh, we have recipes on our website, too. I didn't do any of them. You'll probably be safe if you make them. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Gene. Thanks to Lily. <laughs> Oh, it's good. All right. Go ahead. Ah, it's good to my now.